Special season in New Britain for the Blue Devils if they can play 18 seconds of sound football. It is blocked by Sexton. Unreal touchdown. We had some great calls in college football week four, but that last one that I just played there, Eastern Michigan's game-winning block punt, Central Connecticut State. I think that was the best one. The guy, I don't even know who was announcing it. Stephen Lassen, our co-host on for this week, he probably knows who was watching it because he was probably watching that game, but the announcer didn't even finish his sentence. I think he was playing sound football when Central Connecticut gives up the block punt uh, to let your Stephen Lassen, to let your Chris Creighton-led Eastern Michigan Eagles to to avoid an upset there. Andrew Dowdy here on the High Motor Podcast. And like I said, Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports filling in this weekend. Stephen, did you shed a little... First of all, were you watching it live? And second of all, did you shed a little tear when the Eagles pull off the win in miraculous fashion? I was actually watching it live. Um, on Saturdays, I usually try to keep the scoreboard open for those, you know, throughout the day just to keep an eye on the scores. But once those games get down to the end, I usually fire up that dead game on, on ESPN3 or watch ESPN. And sure enough, I turned it on and Central Connecticut was running down the, the clock at the end of the game. And I looked away and thought, this is going to be it for Eastern Michigan. They're not going to win. And then I look back over and I see the punt being blocked. And I, I'm thinking, you know, this is this is insane. It's, uh, surely someone else has to be watching this. And sure enough, uh, on Twitter, there were a couple people talking about it. So um, kind of a crazy uh, couple weeks for Eastern Michigan. I mean, beat Illinois and then to need a block punt like that to, to beat an FCS team. Yeah, you come you come after your, your third straight year with a win. Granted, Illinois, Big Ten, whatever, but you still have three straight years of a win over a Big Ten team on the road, and then you come back and you need that that type of play. All right, Stephen, um, I, I want to talk about Jim Harbaugh here. I don't want to beat it to death because that's everyone's talking about this week after what happened up in Madison. A lot of heat uh, on Jim Harbaugh. First of all, credit to the Badgers. I don't think that people are talking about that enough. I know Michigan looked terrible. But that's still a really good Wisconsin team rebounding from a rough year. I think they're a real playoff threat. We can talk about that too uh, if you want. But first of all, the heat on Jimbo, which, you know, let's be honest, I think you probably agree with me. We don't know if that heat is actually real within the athletic department, if he's actually on the hot seat in Ann Arbor. You know, I, I don't I don't think he is yet because I think Ward Manuel, Michigan man himself, uh, I don't think he'll pull the plug on somebody like Harbaugh yet. But, uh, you know, for what it's worth, he didn't hire Harbaugh. If that matters at all, who knows? But regardless, I got to thinking on Saturday when I was watching that that demolition in Madison, if Michigan does fire him after the season, if they do pay that $10 million buyout, buying out those last two years of the contract, the question is, who do they hire? And we talked about this a little bit before we hopped on here. I feel like if you're going to have the hot seat conversation if you're going to have that conversation, we need to have the who do they hire conversation. And, Stephen, I had a really hard time coming up with even a few guys. It doesn't seem like there's the guy. I mean, Harbaugh was the guy last last time around. That was basically the only guy uh, back in late 2014. So I want to get your thoughts first. Do you, do you see a, a the guy or even a couple of guys from Michigan if they were to move on after this season? I really don't. And I think that's part of the challenge for Michigan is if Jim Harbaugh, who was successful at San Diego, 
finished in the top five at Stanford, took the 49ers to the Super Bowl, um, has won 10 games in three out of his four full-time seasons at Michigan. If he can't get it done at Michigan, I don't know who can. Um, when I, th- I kind of thought about replacements, and I thought, you know, maybe Matt Campbell at, at Iowa State, uh, maybe Michigan would just back the Brinks truck up and try to hire Jeff Brom from Purdue. But the list of replacements is pretty small, I would think. I, I think that's kind of the challenge for Michigan is that there's no obvious replacement candidate. And at the same time, you know, Michigan has done some good things under Jim Harbaugh. It's not like he's gone five and seven or or four and eight. They finished in the top 15 of the Associated Press poll uh, three times. And, you know, before then, you know, from 2005 to 2014, they only had four as a program. So just under Harbaugh, they finished in the top 15 three times. So this program has been better under him. I think that the problem is they haven't gone from good to great and being able to challenge Ohio State, beat Ohio State, win the Big Ten, and go to the playoff. And maybe the bigger conversation is maybe the expectation at Michigan, maybe it's a little bit high in the sense that maybe it's just a top 15 um, program right now and that Harbaugh is doing the best he can. I think it's interesting to look at, and I talk about this a lot, is just kind of being a victim of your own early success. I mean, Brady Hoke, so he, Brady Hoke obviously started great at that 11 win season, and he kind of just slowly declined. I think his win total declined each year he was there, and they go 5 and 7 in 2014. So let's say Harbaugh comes in and goes 5 and 7 in 2015. Everyone's like, ah, not great, but whatever. You know, he took over a tough situation from Hoke. And then it builds up, and then he goes, you know, seven and five, and then they have that eight and five season like he had in 2017. Now he's coming off back-to-back ten-win seasons. It's weird how if you just flip those seasons around, basically add in a subpar year in 2015, it's a completely different conversation, and it's, it's a stupid game to play because that's not really what happened at all. So we can't just put in different records there. But but I agree with you. I, mean, I know you mentioned Matt Campbell. You know, do they do they back up the Brinks truck for Jeff Brown? They probably have to do that for Matt Campbell too with that buyout. You know, like Bronco, Bronco Mendenhall came to mind for me, like Matt Rule, Justin Wilcox. I want to talk about Cal and Justin Wilcox in a second. Um, you know, but but who does Michigan hire where they say this is totally worth paying Harbaugh's ten million plus another minimum, bare minimum four to five million dollars for this guy? I mean, let's say if Justin Wilcox is that guy, and I think he's one of the the rare, affordable type of names that has the Power 5 coordinator experience, has the Power 5 head coaching experience, if they give Harbaugh $10 million to go away and then give Wilcox, let's say, $4 million per year, I mean, do they really tuck themselves in and sleep tight because they know he's the right guy? Do they feel that much better if if they wake up uh, in, in 2020 and Jeff Brom is leading that program? Does that make them feel that much better than what's going on right now? And they're paying a ton of money to do so. I think if I'm a Michigan fan, I don't know that I would. I mean, I think, you know, we, we mentioned the success. I mean, three 10-win uh, seasons in Harbaugh's four years. And I think of the last five, you know, Harbaugh is one of the top six to seven, you know, winning his coaches just in terms of that uh, time period. Uh, you know, I think... Harbaugh, in terms of where he ranks in coaches, I mean, certainly in the top 25 somewhere, Matt Campbell, Jeff Brom, they would all be right in that same space. But I don't know that Michigan goes from where they are at the end of the season in the top 15 to being any better under those coaches. I think the challenge for Harbaugh going forward is this team needs some sort of identity. You know, watching that game yesterday, 
you know, I don't know. I mean, Michigan, I think from an offensive standpoint, has the weapons at receiver. Um, the running back situation right now a little iffy because of the injuries. But you just saw that they were once they they could not get that first first down to get the offense going. And you know, are are they going to be a full time spread team? Do, you know, last year they were second in the Big Ten in scoring offense, and that was kind of Harbaugh's style of play. And now they go away from it. And it looks like they've regressed on offense. So I think if, if you're you're a Michigan fan, you have to just give Jim Harbaugh the time to figure it out. And I think maybe on the other hand, defensively, Don Brown's defense, I mean, not only yesterday, they were out of place and just you know tackling and, and every kind of issue you could imagine. But it's also going back to last season against Ohio State, against Florida. So I think both sides of the ball right now, they're searching for answers. And I just I don't think if you get rid of Harbaugh tomorrow, any of those get better. I think Michigan just gets worse. And I think the you know the question is there's no obvious replacement that makes Michigan go from being a top uh, you know fifteen ten to fifteen team to being in the top five. And and I think a lot of that's just Ohio State is just also really good too. Do you think it's fair to say I keep going and I think this is a good example for you know a lot of different programs. I keep going back to Texas A and M. I think that Texas A and M obviously should have been better over the last 10, 12 years, whatever, as those resources have built up, but they've invested so much money in that program. And finally, they just said, screw it. We're going to pay Kevin Sunland a whole bunch of money. I can't remember what that buyout was. It was like $10, $11, $12 million, something like that. And we're going to go out and get Jimbo Fish. And that was a really unique situation with Fisher at uh, kind of wanting to leave Florida State, but not actually pursuing to leave Florida State. So that was unique in itself. But the point is that Texas A&M finally just said, we're done. We're going to pay someone a whole bunch of money to go away. And we're going to go get our guy and give him $75 million because we need to be better at football. We should be better at football. Is Michigan in a similar spot where, where they are I, – I, you don't have the, the first-hand insight to say yes or not, if, but do you think that Michigan has reached the point – and you said that maybe Michigan expectations should be lower, but do you feel like they've reached the point where they just say, we need to be better at football. We need to pay Harbaugh if he's not our guy. We need to pay him whatever we need to pay him. In this case, it would be $10 million after this season, $5 million after uh, 2020, and that's obviously the last year of his contract, 2021, so that buyout is gone after the seven-year contract. Is Michigan at a point where they just say, we're done. We need to go out and pay Matt Campbell $70 million, pay Jim Harbaugh his 10 because we need to be a consistent Big Ten title contender, and we need to aim for the playoff every couple of years. I think if you would poll some of the fan base, I think they're certainly fed up at this point. I mean, seeing the reaction, um, you know, on Saturday from whether it was the message boards or on Twitter, uh, there's certainly a level of frustration with Harbaugh and then a frustration that the program has not gone from, you know, good to great and being able to beat Ohio State. So I, I think it's, it's tough for me to see Michigan doing that. If Harbaugh goes, five and seven this year and they get off to a slow start next year yeah i think maybe that becomes a a more realistic possibility maybe the other kind of scenario in this is is maybe harbaugh just gets frustrated and just goes back to the nfl i mean you know there's gonna i'm sure there'll be some openings this season but is it just a case to where maybe both parties are, are just better off you know harbaugh in the nfl michigan with uh, some new coach and and seeing what happens. I mean that that strikes me as maybe a, a you know some kind of scenario that we could see play out. Absolutely, and I think it could be a situation. I don't want to probably, you know speculate on that, but is it a situation like Gary Anderson at Oregon State where he just didn't take the buyout? I mean Jim Harbaugh would he really? I don't know if he would or not. 
would he take $10 million from alma mater and kind of put them in a tough financial position? I, I would imagine that Michigan has the money to make it happen. But would would Jim Harbaugh get to a point where he said, you know what, I didn't get the job done. Uh, I'm going to go to the NFL. I don't need my $10 million. Uh, whatever. I don't know. I had mentioned Justin Wilcox. I think that could be an interesting uh guy to look at at Michigan, other bigger jobs. I thought the last couple of years when something big comes open, he, he's the rare guy, like I mentioned before, where he's semi-affordable. He's only making $2.5 million this season. I think the contract calls for $3 million next season. That's a nice raise, but he's still nowhere near the highest paid Power 5 coaches. He has that, that rare blend of affordability, Power 5 assistant experience, and now he's got some pretty nice experience uh, at Cal and in Cal in that Pac-12 now 4-0 on the season I want to ask you just just wins and losses wise not necessarily even what you think of Cal but just wins and losses wise and what opportunities lie ahead for Cal is Cal the Pac-12's only remaining playoff hope whether you believe that they're a real threat or not is, is Cal just kind of carrying the the tiny glass of water for Pac-12 right now I think they have to be just because they're undefeated and they've already beat a pretty good Washington team. If you ask me who I think is the best team in the Pac-12 this year, I would probably still say Washington. And if Cal already has a win over Washington, game still remaining against Oregon, Utah, Washington State, um, a suddenly much more interesting USC team, um, you know, that that resume can at least get them in the conversation. But I, I think a bigger challenge, though, for Cal is even if they go 11-1 or 12-0, you start looking at the landscape this season, and it just it seems like there are six teams who have kind of separated themselves. And would a one-loss LSU team to Alabama be ranked behind a Cal team that could be undefeated and may only have you know a, a win over a ranked Washington and a Utah team. I think I'd probably would go with LSU being ranked ahead of them, but at this point, since Cal's the only undefeated Pac-12 team, I think they have to be considered um, a playoff contender. I wouldn't put them in the very serious category because I don't think they're going to go undefeated, but right now they are the only undefeated team in the Pac-12, so... I think that kind of makes them a, a contender at this point. You mentioned that schedule a little bit. They get Arizona State at home, but then they're going and not not to dismiss what the Sun Devils could possibly do uh, in Berkeley. But they get Arizona State at home, at Oregon, at Utah, Washington State at home. We know they blew the UCLA uh, uh, thirty-two point lead on Friday, or excuse me, on Saturday night. But that's still a dangerous game. USC at home. You mentioned at Stanford, at UCLA, and there's kind of a narrative whether you buy into it or not you know there's a saying that if you go undefeated and you're a power five team you're gonna get in and that's that's kind of been the case sometimes in the past at least you're in that conversation but are you i mean like you said yeah they'd have some really really nice wins but they're probably not gonna have a top eight a top 10 maybe not even like a top 12 type of win that the committee really looks at and says cal beat this team they need to be seriously considered and it you know, it appears, and you alluded to this, it appears highly possible, maybe even highly likely, that uh, several teams are going to feed it. Ohio State to go and defeat it now with what Michigan has done. We'll see with that Wisconsin game coming up in the Big Ten Championship game. But it, it seems highly likely that Ohio State could go undefeated, Clemson, Oklahoma, and then one SEC team is probably going to go undefeated. You talked about LSU being a one-loss team, but it seems highly likely that the Alabama, Georgia, LSU, even Auburn, so if we get undefeated teams from the other Power 5 leagues, and I know we're getting just so far out front here, but with the landscape of the Pac-12, 
I just can't help myself because Cal, like you said, is really the only threat by default, barring complete chaos. But anyways, you know, if Oklahoma, Ohio State, Clemson, SEC team go undefeated, an undefeated Cal is left out, even though they have some really nice wins, right? I think so. I, I mean, I, I have a hard time. I mean, I'm, as we're looking at their schedule, I think I mean, I'm pretty sure Washington will be ranked at the end of the year. Washington State kind of on the bubble. Oregon should be too. We'll see about USC, and I think that's probably going to be it. And I think maybe to what would help Cal is if North Texas ends up winning Conference USA, if Ole Miss rebounds in um, SEC play. You know, when they scheduled the the Ole Miss game, I'm sure that you know Ole Miss was was playing better at that point, and probably under Hugh Freeze or whenever it was scheduled. So they kind of got a little bit unlucky break going on the road and and playing an Ole Miss team that might have four or five wins by the end of the year so they don't they don't really have a marquee kind of uh, you know power five non-conference win at this point but i i think in, in just you know the teams you mentioned georgia lsu alabama all of those with one loss i mean barring that it's not a complete one-sided affair in that alabama just completely dominates lsu i would have a hard time seeing cal uh, get ahead of any of those SEC teams, even if they are undefeated. I, I would, I do think it is worth pointing out uh, on Justin Wilcox just how remarkable the defensive uh, turnaround has been. I mean, they get they Cal gave up 42 points a game in the year before Justin Wilcox came to Cal, and then gave up 28 in 2017, 20 in 2018, and 17 this season. I mean, you know, Evan Weaver is going to be an All-American at the end of the year at linebacker. Their secondary is outstanding, too. I mean, th- they, these aren't big-time recruits, and what Justin Wilcox has done in the Pac-12 with this defense, if they can get anything out of that offense, you know, we, we talked about it. They've already beat Washington. If they can go on the road and beat Oregon, I mean, by then, that point of season, they'll be right there around the top 10. So I, I don't think they'll be a playoff contender, but at, at least, if nothing else, like we talked about, Justin Wilcox has put himself on the radar for potentially bigger jobs uh, from what he's done defensively and then what he's been able to do for Cal over the last couple of years. Hey, Stephen, one thing, you mentioned that Ole Miss game, and I want to talk about what happened on the third down the replay, but when you started talking about Justin Wilcox, um, you know, he he's shown that in the past. Like at Wisconsin, he hit a nice run as defensive coordinator. It got me thinking. I, w- I was thinking about this on, on Twitter uh, while Wisconsin was in the process of shutting out Michigan and actually get it, but they didn't give up a point for the first, what was like 11 quarters of their season. And I'm, I'm looking at Jim Leonard. I know that he doesn't have a whole lot of experience. He's still extremely young. He hasn't coached anywhere. He's only been a coordinator for a couple of years. But what Jim Leonard has, I mean, talk about guys that, that weren't highly rated recruits, and he just pulled these walk-ons and two-star guys and put together one of the most dominant defenses in college football. Do you think that Jim Leonard is a guy that, that could leave for a head coaching job? And if so, would he take it? Like, would, uh, let's say like Illinois opens up, for example, and they call Jim Leonard. Is it worth Jim Leonard even going to an Illinois, going to you know, a decent group of five school? Or is it better for him to just stick it out, kind of like Justin Wilcox did? Wilcox obviously bounced around a little bit, had more experience than Leonard. But it, right now we're seeing so many coordinators have a nice run at a power five school for four, five, six, seven years and get really, really good jobs. So if, if Jim Leonard is in a position where he does want a head coaching job, do you think that he will stick around Wisconsin? Or do you think that a mid-level group of five, low-level power five job could be in his near future? I think I think he can you know, kind of almost be patient 
and you know basically afford to be patient here because he's coaching at his alma mater and you know i think we've seen jobs like illinois come open they've cycled through some coaches they've had trouble um moving the program forward and i think in you know it's any time you take over a rebuild job like in illinois like a kansas you know that there's going to be a kind of a, a transition period it's not going to be easy whereas if you're jim leonard you can be patient and take a job um, maybe that comes up that's not as kind of intensive on the rebuild front. So I think he's absolutely going to be a name to watch in the coaching searches in the next couple of years. He is at his alma mater, like I mentioned. So I would expect him to be patient. Um, I also think, you know, just mentioning him, this defense for Wisconsin, you mentioned the stat. You know, they were banged up last year, and that was part of Wisconsin's problems. But they've had injuries on that side of the ball this year, too, and they've been outstanding. So I, I think we're seeing that Jim Leonard is quickly becoming maybe one of the more under-the-radar uh, defensive coordinators in college football. Seems to be in a pretty comfortable position. Like you said, it might just be better to, to wait it out. And even if he does or doesn't want a head coaching job, it seems like he knows what he's doing at Wisconsin as some sort of a system there that if he uh, doesn't want that risk, of, like you said, going to a Kansas where if, that's kind of your shot. I mean, not that you wouldn't get another shot. We've seen coaches take on rebuilds and fail and then get another shot later. But if you you know, take on an Illinois, take on a Kansas, take on a lower-level Power 5 rebuilding job, and you you know it's going to take you three to five years and it doesn't work then you're just back to being a coordinator and you have to wait another three or four years to kind of restart the cycle so it almost pushes you back 10 years and right now yeah Leonard doesn't have that experience but one of his his assets one of his attributes that he is younger and if a program feels like he's the right fit and they feel like they can hang on to him if they start winning he could be there for you know 10 15 years whatever okay I mentioned Ole Miss they were pissed about uh that third down you know rightfully so uh, that the Pac-12 refs didn't review. Was it a touchdown or not? Pac-12 refs took it out. Ole Miss ran the sneak. Didn't work. And I've always wondered this. Just It made me wonder it even more. Why don't we have like an NCAA-appointed official at each game in the booth? Why is there not even like a command center like the MLB has to get these things Right. I mean, the, the money is there, Stephen. The, the money is there in college football. The technology is there to make this happen. The NCAA is so obsessed with ticky-tack things, everything being fair all the time, and this just isn't fair. I know that the Cal-Ole Miss situation was unique because it was such a bang-bang play. Uh, uh, Ole Miss had to get up to the line to run another play, so there wasn't a whole lot of time for the officials to actually probably even look at the play, but a play that was that close, why are the officials not getting buzzed, or why are the officials themselves don't have the power to stop the game? I feel like they're just missing opportunities that are there. To I don't know if Ole Miss would have won that game, but why have we not streamlined replay when we have 130 different teams playing in 10 different conferences with independence? This is not am – I, am, I, am I just crazy here? This is not that hard to figure out. No, no, not at all. I, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is should we be shocked that the Pac-12 referees and, and controversy and – uh, you know, kind of late game blunders kind of follow the, the conference. I'm sure Larry Scott was on the blower telling him not to review the play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Um, you know, I, I am frustrated by this too, because I, I know that there's always the frustration of replay takes too long. The games are too long. There's a human element to all this, but I think in the just big picture sense, it's important to just get it right. And I don't care if the game takes five minutes longer. If it means that they checked it on replay 
and it was either you know the correct call or the incorrect call, we just get it right because the it, it didn't matter on on Saturday because once I saw the replays later on, it looked like the correct call was made on the field, but it was so close. It was worth reviewing, and I I, I think in that case, why is there not? some sort of referee discretion to just automatically say the play was close, and especially in, in the last seconds where you don't have 15, 20 seconds to wait for the replay official to review it. It almost just needs to go to automatic review. Right, why is the side judge not just running in? I know that referees hate and conferences hate admitting their faults, even though we've kind of gotten better at that with uh, with conferences admitting when they, they messed up something. But why doesn't the side judge just run in and say, you know what, guys, I think he's short, but we need to look at this. Why is that so hard? Is there just too much ambiguity there then? Do we get into too much of a can of worms situation? It's a great question. I, I think, yeah, I think they're pro- it's probably kind of the human element to this in that they don't want kind of over officiating you know there's there's going to be mistakes and and calls in real time and and trying to keep that preserved but i think it just in this case it's in, in in the big picture sense just being able to have someone like you said um being able to streamline the officiating process being able to make those calls kind of on the fly on in the, in the final seconds it's one thing during the flow of a game if there's a you know a completion on second down and you have time to review it. But in the final seconds of a game, you don't have time to wait on the official, just review it. It it would have, you know, it would have taken two minutes for them to review it. And I think everyone would have been a little bit more satisfied with the ending. Instead, once again, we're, we're left with the officiating controversy involving the PAC 12 and Ole Miss who, you know, who thinks that that the play should have been reviewed. So I'm with you. I think this whole process and, I don't know if I have all the answers to it, but there needs to be some kind of tweaks or streamlines, especially with the money and technology that goes into these games and can be used for replay to just get it right. All right, Steven. So we talked about Jim Harbaugh. I don't think that hot seat talk on that is overreaction after what happened in Madison. That was a complete joke. That was just pathetic. So we usually play you're wrong in the podcast, but this week I want Steven, I want you to tell me if, these are overreactions as we enter week five, okay? So one, and I'm not sure if I necessarily even believe these overreactions, but I think that they're fair, and I'm curious your take on it. Number one, Ohio State will score 60 on Nebraska and Lincoln this weekend. Is that an overreaction to what we've seen the last couple of weeks? I think it might be a little bit of an overreaction. Um, I, I would say I would point to the the fumbles lost category for Nebraska, the fact that they've lost you know 11 turnovers this year. If that continues, Ohio State will score that many points. But Nebraska defensively, I think, has played better this season. Now, certainly the second half against Colorado, they gave up some yards and points to to Illinois on Saturday. But I think this group is better than they were last season. I think they're going to have their hands full on, on Saturday. But I, I would be surprised if Ohio State hits that total uh, this week. Number two, Texas A&M, they lose to Auburn uh, this weekend. They had lost to Clemson two weeks ago. So I'm going to say Texas A&M is multiple years away from real SEC playoff contention. I'm kind of 50-50 on this one, only because looking ahead to next year when Alabama is probably going to lose Tua and those receivers and LSU is going to lose Joe Burrow. Now, certainly Alabama is going to reload and so will LSU as well. But, you know, the door might be open a little bit next season, especially with Kellen Mond coming back. Texas A&M has a lot of juniors and sophomores in the starting lineup. 
so I think next year could be a little bit more, uh, you know, I guess fruitful for Texas A&M in the SEC West uh, title race. But I also think they're still fighting Alabama, LSU, and Auburn. So I'm kind of 50-50 on it just because the door may be open a little bit more next year. But at the same time, I don't think I'd pick Texas A&M to win the SEC West next year. I was even 50-50 on kind of writing that because I actually don't dislike A&M this year. I know I had them at number 8 in my rankings entering last week. I still have them in the top 15 this week after the Auburn loss. But I just feel like they're that one big step behind. I think they're closer than they were to that contention under Sumlin, in my opinion. But it feels like they need that one huge step. And I think it'll take uh, a year Let's stay in Texas. Texas's defense, I think that they're a massive problem after that Oklahoma State game. Yes, I know Oklahoma State's offense can move the ball, but I'm going to say that Texas's defense is a massive problem, and it's going to lead to another loss against a team that is not named Oklahoma. I agree with that. Um, the, coming into this season, Texas had two returning starters on defense, a lot of new faces at, at, at every level. And they've been banged up, especially in the secondary. And, and of course, that's the worst place you want to be uh, having injuries in the Big 12 is at cornerback and safety. But I think looking at Texas on on the schedule front, their late season schedule where they have to play at TCU, at Baylor, at Iowa State, I mean, none of those are easy matchups. And especially as we've seen in the Big 12, you get into conference play, uh, there's always an upset or two, and, and the, there's not a lot of separation between some of these teams. So I like what Texas is doing offensively. Sam Ellinger is playing at a high level, but I do think they will probably stumble somewhere else uh, at the end of the somewhere other than Oklahoma right now. Yeah, going back over their stats a, a little bit here, I mean, they're in the middle of the pack in sack percentage, barely 6%, 98th uh, yards allowed per pass attempt, 91st yards per completion. Uh, rush defense has been better. I mean, like you said, they don't have as many injuries up front, three, 3.4 yards per rush, but they're still giving up just shy of six yards per play. Um, and that's a very, comes out to a very average uh point there, and then also 48th in points per play. I mean, I think they survived versus Oklahoma State, who, besides Oklahoma, is probably the best offense in the Big 12. You know, the Big 12 doesn't have the, the pathetically weak link like we've had with Kansas in the past, and I don't, I'm not saying I'm going to pick Kansas to beat Texas, um, but, you know, I think that there are some teams who can still move the ball. There aren't as many um, sure losses or sure wins in their schedule, kind of like you said, they'll still be favored against. Probably they'll probably be favored against Iowa State. I would think. I think that game's in Ames, but they'll still be favored. They'll still be favored against TCU and Baylor. But kind of seeing what Todd Orlando's defense is doing, maybe if they have another injury or two, God forbid. Um, yeah, I just I could see them dropping another game. Last one for you before we wrap it up here. Let's stay in the SEC. Let's stay with some coaching stuff. I'm going to say Will Muschamp, Chad Morris, Jeremy Pruitt, all three SEC head coaches, none of those three will ever win 10 games in the season at their current school. Is that an overreaction? I don't think that's an overreaction at all. And in fact, I think that's that's going to be spot on. I, I think the only one out of that trio that could maybe get it together is Jeremy Pruitt. I think Will Muschamp, the schedule this year, is just too difficult, not to mention he's probably going to go into next season on the hot seat. And for Arkansas, just winning 10 games in the SEC West is going to be difficult when you're still at a disadvantage when you play Alabama, LSU, A&M, and Auburn. And not to mention that they're off to such a, a kind of a crazy start. He, you know, Bielema left a little bit of a mess 
and Chad Morris is kind of in the process of trying to clean up and rebuild the roster. And then, of course, they lose to, to San Jose State, which does not help. So I, I think Jeremy Pruitt will be the only one who could have a shot at that. But I think all three, uh, I think that's pretty much a, that's pretty much a, kind of a spot-on reaction. I would say none of those three would get to those 10 wins. How much would that change? Maybe this is more of an expectation distortion for me. Obviously, outside of like the nice run that South Carolina had with those those 11 win seasons under Spurrier. I mean, these programs just haven't been ripping off 10 win seasons. So I'm already just maybe setting the bar too high, where they just haven't touched it that much over the last couple of decades aside from that South Carolina run uh, I don't know but Petrino had an, a couple nice years at Arkansas but I guess I put it at 10 because it feels like that's where these programs we talked about Michigan's expectations they've gotten to 10 wins now a few straight years uh, is this this feels like where these programs want to be I mean that's why Arkansas gave Bielema 12 million dollars to go away that's why Tennessee keeps firing coaches so these realistic expectations are not I guess if I had put it at eight wins, would you have considered Muschamp and Morris in that conversation with Pruitt? Or what's the what's the bar? I mean, what is? I mean, we could get into a bigger conversation talk about expectations, but what is the expectation for for Will Muschamp and Chad Morris? It's a great question. I, I mean, I think both South Carolina and Arkansas kind of fall into that top twenty-five to thirty-five job, and I think Tennessee's a top twenty-five job. I, I think it. Not that it's overrated, but I think there may be the expectation level may be a little bit too high. I mean, the the fan base at Tennessee wants to win the SEC East and and win ten games on a consistent basis. Nothing nothing wrong with having expectations. The problem is when Georgia is playing at the level that it is, and Florida, uh, you know, a usual top five to ten team, you're already the third best job in the division. So. Uh, Tennessee, you know, Tennessee's got a tough road. I, I think if you said it at eight, I, I think both. I think Muschamp next year, given that Helinski comes back next season, they could build around him. Uh, I think Jeremy Pruitt, the way that Tennessee is recruiting, gives them a chance in the future. But I, I don't don't know that I would take any of them to get to eight wins. With but Pruitt would be the most likely candidate i think in the next couple years hey steven last thing for you of those three coaches who will be at their school the longest i think pruitt um you don't think morris's has a i I guess i'm asking because it seems like morris might have a a pretty long they're not going to pay another 10 million dollar buyout for for chad morris you think that morris because he has a longer leash than pruitt would he put into the conversation there? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think when it comes to Pruitt, I think we we have seen some signs of progress before the Georgia State game and then the play against BYU. They went on the road and beat Auburn. They beat Kentucky last year when both games were underdogs. And Tennessee has recruited well. And I think their problem has been talent development, especially along the offensive and defensive lines. And I think Pruitt is pretty good at being a hands-on, kind of a good teacher um, from X's and O's standpoint. So I I think Tennessee can get better. Um, I I, I do think this year it's going to be tough just to get to a bowl game. So I I think long-term, I think Pruitt might be the one with the most value. As far as Morris goes, we look at what he took over from Brett Bielema. It was definitely a year zero type of situation last season and things seemed to be going in the right direction before they lost to San Jose State. I mean, San Jose State was probably one of the 
bottom 15 teams in college football and, and just the fact that they lose the game in the fashion that they did, the expectation, I mean, Arkansas is a pretty passionate fan base and they want to win too. I think just getting to two wins in the SEC West in the next you know, year or two is going to be very difficult. I think they play Notre Dame next year in non-conference play too. So I, I think it's going to be very difficult for Chad Morris to get to eight wins anytime soon. All right, the High Motor Podcast. We'll be back midweek, couple of guests as we look ahead to week five and the rest of the season. Not many uh, huge, huge games looking ahead to week five. We do have Virginia, Notre Dame, USC, Washington could be interesting, especially after what USC did in Salt Lake City last week. Uh, Arizona State, Cal might be one to to keep an eye on, but not many uh, massive games for week five. Still a lot to talk about, though. Hey, Steven, uh, it's always a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. Hey, Andrew, anytime. Thanks for having me on. I really, really enjoyed it. That's Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports. I'm Andrew Dowdy, and thank you for dropping by the High Motor Podcast to wrap up week four of the college football season. Oh, 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 oh,